From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. A shocking number of Kremlin opponents have died of poisoning. Back in the Cold War, there was Georgi Markov, a Bulgarian dissident who died after a KGB agent stabbed him with an umbrella tipped in ricin. In Ukraine, presidential candidate Viktor Yushchenko was disfigured by poisoning. Journalist Anna Polikovskaya drank poison tea. Alexander Litvinenko, a former FSB officer who criticized the Kremlin, died after being exposed to polonium-210, a radioactive isotope. Then there was Sergei Skripal, Vladimir Karamurza, and, of course, Alexei Navalny. Recently, there have been reports that three Russian women who now live outside of Russia, two of them journalists, are likely to have been poisoned. Natalia Arnaud, head of an organization that supports civil society and democratic development in Russia, is one of them. Well, this happened to me in early May. I was on my European trip to Berlin and Prague. And in Prague, when I came back to my hotel room, I saw that the door was ajar. And of course, the first immediate reaction was, oh, maybe there is an FSB or GRU officer waiting for me in my room. But I was <laughs> laughing at myself for <laughs> this thought. And of course, more natural reasoning was that probably the maid forgot it. So it was quite weird because I travel a lot. I am very often on planes and live in different hotels. And this is the first time I've ever saw the hotel door open. <laughs> when I got inside, I saw that there was nobody in the room. And for us, pro-democracy Russians, surveillance is the norm. Natalia Arnaud, you're president of the Free Russia Foundation, founded in 2014. Can you describe what happened when you believed that you were poisoned? We are very used that we are being watched, that we are being recorded for discreditation purposes or for any criminal cases against us and so on and so forth. So the first reaction was that probably my room was bugged and I started to check my room for any listening or recording devices. I checked my clothes, my suitcase, my room. I immediately noticed a very strong, unpleasant smell in the room, a very strange smell, like very strong, cheap, unpleasant, too sweet of a perfume. But I didn't find any devices, any bugs in the room, and I changed and went out to have more meetings outside of the hotel. When I came back, the smell wasn't as significant, and I worked a little bit more, and I went to bed quite late. But three hours later, at 5 a.m., I woke up from a very sharp dental pain. And again, for the first reaction of a normal person is, yes, you have a toothache, you need to see a doctor. This is exactly what I felt. <laughs> I asked my son, yes, to make an appointment for the dentist. And I also understood that I won't be able to stay in Prague for another day, go back by train to Berlin, have more meetings in Berlin and so on. So I immediately changed my flight for the earliest available flight. It was 9 a.m. I came back to the United States. And this is when, or flying back to the U.S., this is when I started to understand what is happening to me, to my body, because if I had the slightest suspicion that it could be poisoning, of course, I wouldn't dare to have a transatlantic 
flight without medical attention for so many hours. But on the flights, I started to feel a wandering pain throughout my body. It wasn't a toothache any longer. I had like different density and intensiveness and timing of the pain all across the body and my armpits and my eyes and my chest and my ears and my stomach everywhere. So it was like the organs were failing one by one. And also simultaneously from the very first second, I started to feel numbness in my especially arms but also legs and along my spine when i started to feel it along my spine it was quite scary <laughs> mm. so it was quite a nightmare of a flight and i still have neuropathy recently my doctor neurologist confirmed that this is a polyneuropathy couldn't be caused by natural reasons and also that it's almost impossible to treat it like there is no magic pill for that just in a year hopefully my nerves will regenerate I just need to have more exercises and less stress I told her it's easy to have more exercises I cannot promise less stress and all these conditions we are living in at the moment and with the ongoing war with repressions inside the country and so on and it's like yeah less stress is impossible but there is an ongoing investigation by US authorities about my case I don't have the results yet but again simultaneously I learned to about the other cases, as you mentioned, to journalists. They even had the test run by the Charité Clinic where Alexei Navalny was treated when he was in coma and when he was, yes, all these consequences from Novichok poisoning. And of course, knowing the case of Vladimir Karamurza, whose birthday is today on September mm. 7th, when we're recording this podcast, yes, and he was poisoned, as you said, it was in 2015 and 2017, and he has polyneuropathy. So I can relate to his situation very well. I can understand how terrible he feels. But back then when I learned about my case and about other cases and when some journalists learned about it and made it public about our series of alleged poisonings I also spoke out about it I posted a very long Facebook post addressing to the exiled entire war pro-democracy Russian community saying that nothing new happened we have always known that this regime is very brutal very criminal, very murderous very brazen, very vindictive we have always known that transnational repression is quite a big thing for them. We have always known that poisoning is in their arsenal of attacking and silencing their opponents. And extrajudicial killings is not something new as well. There were murders or attempts to murder in so many European capitals, yes, in London, in Berlin, in Vienna, and yeah. so on. So nothing new. What it says, unfortunately, it's quite weird badge of honor, not only when they designate us as foreign agents or undesirable organizations, but also when they attack us, when they target us, when they try to poison us and silence us in this way, it means that we are very efficient, we are very impactful, we do something that irritates the Kremlin. And <laughs> this is one of the things that is still left for them, how they can target us in the democratic world. As a community, we were maybe less cautious when we fled Russia, when we became citizens or residents or when we started to live in, in different countries. Of course, there was a huge exodus of Russians under Putin period of rule. But of course, the biggest started in 2021 when basically 
the Kremlin eradicated the political opposition and civil society and independent journalism preparing for this full-scale invasion. But after the beginning of the full-scale invasion, even bigger numbers of Russians had to flee Russia. So there is at least more than one million people all across the globe. Some of us are in less safer countries like Central Asia or South Caucasus, like Armenia, Georgia, also in Turkey and so on. We understand the risk there. We understand that there are a lot of FSB officers infiltrated and surveilling us in those countries or some of the countries like Kyrgyzstan, for example, can extradite pro-democracy Russians back to Russia. But those who were in the safer places like at the European Union or in the United States or in Canada, we all thought that we are now safer and that we can Mm. continue our fight for a free and democratic and normal Russia without any hesitance, without any risks, without any threats. But unfortunately... The Kremlin tentacles are too long, and for years and years they were doing a lot of malign activity in the West, including in the democratic world, and they have their agents' networks, and they're very good at surveilling, at monitoring, at again, mm-hmm. at doing a lot of this activity, and also talking to different decision makers, legislators, officials in many European countries, for example, we shouldn't be fearing them. We have always known who they are. As I said, yes, we have known that they are murderous and brutal and all that. But we also know what we do. We are committed to our fight. We should stand on our principles. We should continue doing everything we can to stop the war, to try to change public opinion inside Russia, to tell Russian people the truth, to tell the world the truth about Putin's regime, to expose the corrupt schemes, how they circumvent Western sanctions and so on and so forth. So we have a lot of work and we should be focused on our work without panicking, without any fears, but more cautious, more careful, better prepared, more disciplined as a community. Mm. You know, in terms of just that particular way of attacking you and other, let's call dissidents, people who oppose the Putin regime, why exactly do they take poisoning? Because I know some people have actually died, and then others have not died, but have been injured like you and Vladimir Karamurza and others. What do you think, and this is almost a technical question, but why do you think they do resort to poisoning? Very interesting question. I also think about it a lot and about just why they do what they do all the time. If they think they have the strongest support, why do they need to eliminate the opponents running for elections? Like again, last <laughs> Putin's elections uh, in 2018, yes, why he needed to assassinate Boris Nemtsov very close to the Kremlin, why he needed to have all these criminal cases against Alexei Navalny, all the main opponents to him. If he is so sure in his popularity and how his regime works, why he needs to do that? Why he needed to attack Ukraine like he did not only in 2022, but back Back in 2014. But poisoning is also it's a very barbaric method. Immediately when you hear about poisonings, the first association is about medieval times and about yeah. all this, why, why the Putin's regime is using all those methods, I think. Well, it worked for them. You mentioned a lot of cases which we know, which are public. There are investigations about them. There are some confirmations about them. But also how many cases we don't know that mm. were successful. And it seemed like a heart attack. Like, I don't know what happened to Igor Gaidar or what happened mm. even to Anatoly Sapchak and so on. And many, many other cases. And about methods of assassination of opponents, it's also important because we know that Kadyrovites, for example, they prefer guns, they prefer to shoot people. 
supporters of Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, just to be sure. Yeah. Yes, 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 exactly. But when it's poisoning, it's more typical for GRU about the operations. Again, maybe because, well, there were some laboratories and you can read and see what Andrei Soldatov and Irina Baragan were writing about it. And again, laboratories of how to eliminate your opponents. And they were mastering it for so many years. They tried different kind of poisons. We know that with Litvinenko it was polonium. Then they used Novichok, more likely against Vladimir Karamurza, definitely against Alexei Navalny and so on. And there is something new because in the recent insider investigation, they already are saying it's not Novichok any longer. And it looks like it's something more for mass production, more like, again, sprayish, something what, again, for example, I felt in my hotel room that there was some different and strange smell in the room. So they try different methods, different fragrances, I don't know, different uh, kind of poisons, see what works, what not. It's possible to put all people in Russia behind the bars just because, again... All the laws are so draconian that even, I don't know, even to think can be criminalized and punished. The repressions are more and more massive, more and more people are in jail. We have the biggest number of political prisoners, bigger even than in the late Soviet times. But still, it's not like everybody. And this is what they do with poisons. It's enough for them to poison, I don't know, two, three, ten people, just again, to scare Mm -hmm. the entire community. But I think this is where they underestimate us the same way as the Kremlin underestimated Ukrainians and Ukrainian people and their bravery and their commitment, their dedication to save and protect their land and be independent. They underestimated Russian pro-democracy forces as well. When they were eradicating and eradicating for so many years, they thought nothing will grow there any longer. But no, grassroots are emerging all the time inside Russia and outside. There are a lot of protests every day, again, inside and outside and more and more activity. So, again, we see the clear path and we, pro-democracy Russians, not only the first victims of Putin's regime, of course, not the biggest Ukrainians are, but we were the first targeted by the Kremlin's regime, our first targets to be silenced and murdered and jailed and forced out of the country. And we are the first to tell the world about the danger of this regime, that the internal repression will not stay in its borders. It will be external aggression, inevitably. But also we are the agents of change. We are the only force that is believing that Russia should be and must be democratic. And only democracy in Russia is a guarantee of sustainability of Ukraine's victory and a key factor of security and stability in the region and globally. Only we can bring those changes. And I think it's important for the Western community to understand this, to treat us as their asset. It's not only that we are a problem or a headache for Europe, for example. It's not only that we are asking for visas or bank accounts. No, we are expertise. We are those who know the Kremlin's regime better than anybody. We can help Western governments, democratic governments, to be better prepared to formulate a better and very smart strategy how to counter this regime. We know so much. We experience so much. It's very often Russian people, Russian journalists or activists who exposed the crimes of the Kremlin regime. It was a Russian journalist who was the first to discover Prigozhin's factories of trolls, for example, and then the Western media picked it up. Or it was a Pskov politician and a Pskov newspaper who wrote first about the direct military invasion of Eastern Ukraine back in 2014 and so on and so forth. So we are the ones who know how this regime works, how it thinks. We know how Russian people think and how they behave. And we are the ones who can influence that. And it's very important 
for the West to work with us together. We are the best allies. It's what we always ask. Don't judge us on the basis of our ethnicity, of our citizenship. Judge us on the basis of our values and of our actions. It's very important. Mm. But talking about, let's say, inside Russia right now, I mean, obviously your purpose is democratization and making Russia a democratic yes. country. But right now, there really is a feeling, right or wrong, in the West that a lot of Russians support the regime and very few people are talking about any democratic movement right now in Russia. And yet you're saying there are signs. So give me some signs. What is happening inside sure. of Russia that really gives you hope? that it could eventually be a normal democratic country? Thank you. It's a good question. Usually when I read newspapers, especially, or talk to some sociologists or some politicians, it's very often that it could be demoralizing and it could be <laughs> like no hope. But since my organization and many of our partners, we work with Russian people, we work both inside Russia and outside with the exiled Russian community. We see how much is happening, how active they are, how committed all of them are, especially young people. It was a very big surprise to see that despite all this level of propaganda and all these educational reforms and, of course, all this repressive legislation, that still a lot of people understand what's going on. Russia is the second country in the world now on installing VPNs. When everything is blocked and censored and forced away, Russian people still look for information. They still try to find objective and truthful information. And a lot of those who don't know what VPNs are, what social media is, there is a very popular initiative right now, which is called Print Out Internet. All this activists print out facts and they put it as newspapers, as just printouts into mails of those who don't know about how to find information. So it means that almost every day there was somebody detained for a protest activity. And many Russians protest, some of them protest in a radical way, like setting conscription centers on fire, derailing trains, cutting television cables to stop this huge propaganda, unprecedented propaganda. Or some just do sabotage or promote the idea of sabotage and not helping the regime, or do something which is maybe less public, more grassroots, more underground, but still civil society work. Some initiatives, for example, persuade Russians not to donate for anything war-related, even if it's just, I don't know, backpacks or uniforms for soldiers, saying that this will prolong the war. Let's better donate, I don't know, to dogs, uh, cats, to orphans and things like that. So they're very active and even despite, again, as I said, eradicating everybody, forcing a lot of us in exile or putting a lot of us in jail. Russia is not only an 11 time zone country, you know, not only like 80 plus region country, it's also a country of over 190 ethnic minorities. And for years and years, Putin's regime, the strategy was to impoverish regions, again, to get all the money from the regions to distribute those funding. And they, like, again, the regions are very, very poor people. More and more people are under poverty line. And many of them are national republics. And this is basically the tax on poverty. Those are being conscripted to the war who are from all these poor regions, poor national republics. And as a response, so many ethnic minority and Taiwo groups appeared. We had never had such a vibrant landscape of ethnic minority groups before, trying to talk to their people, trying to tell them how to terminate contracts, how not to go to the war, how to avoid mobilization, or how to get evacuated from Russia if needed. And they're very popular. And that's why the Kremlin, again, as a response, they attack them, censor, block their websites, cut any channels of communication, 
communication. If they are in Excel, it's very difficult for them to talk with their communities inside or put them on a foreign agents list. And even Friburiati Foundation, that was the first ethnic minority in Taiwo group. Maybe you could explain just really quickly. Buryatia is a region of Russia, I believe. Is it Buddhist? Yes, it's Buddhist. It's one of three Buddhist republics, and it's on the eastern side of Lake Baikal. It's close to Mongolia. And under Stalin times, it was divided into five different regions. Now it's three regions of the Russian Federation, where everywhere Buryats are in minority, even in the Republic of Buryat itself, there are less than 30% of Buryats. Again, not to make them a strong movement, ask for independence and so on. And Buryatis, since the very first days of the full-scale invasion, they are on the top of casualties, always like top three, top five. Mm. So a lot of people are being conscripted, a lot of people are dying in this brutal colonial war. And that's why the response, again, Friburiatia Foundation was the very first ethnic minority anti-war organization and the very first to be on the foreign agents list and the very first to be on the undesirable list. Mm. And yes, it gives us hope because we see people, we see their commitment, we see how much they are doing, but also... Even if the entire world is skeptical about prospects of Russia, we, pro-democracy Russians, we cannot afford to be skeptical. We should have this vision of a free and democratic and normal Russia, and we should fight for it every day. Well, Natalia Arnaud, this was both, I would say, inspiring and frightening because of what's happened to you. But the work that you're doing really is inspiring. And I wish you a lot of luck with that. And I also wish you a lot of luck with your health, that you will get better. And you're obviously back in the fight because you're at work all the time. But thank you very much for talking with us. And we will stay in touch and would very much like to follow up if there are any developments, both about your health and then about the democracy movement within Russia. Thank you, Jill. It was an honor to be here. Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.